0: I'm Charlie Redding.
1: And I'm Claire Fudge.
0: And this is the Tribe Athlon Podcast.
2: But I genuinely believe that female athletes deserve the same opportunity that males get. And when we spend millions of pounds trying to stop anyone from cheating, and having the tiniest advantage to say that a female athlete is supposed to line up next to someone that has a massive advantage because of their biology is just not fair
0: that was sharon davis and this episode is fairness in sport Hello, my name is Charlie Redding. Welcome to series four of the Tribe Athlon podcast, the podcast that tries to get under the skin of the most successful runners, swimmers, cyclists, triathletes and people from the kind of periphery of those sports to try and learn what we can you know, take, what we can learn from their success and apply it to our everyday sport. So we've got some amazing guests lined up for Series Four. I've also got Claire Fudge joining me for both some of the interviews and also the um, uh, the outros to kind of pick out the best learning points from that. So that's Claire Fudge, of fourth discipline and nutrition specialist. So we've got an amazing series of, of of interviews lined up for you. I just wanted to explain a slight structural change to the podcast um, for Series Four. So. Because the interviews have always been the the highlight, the main feature of these podcasts, we want to dive straight into those interviews going forward. So we're going to go straight into each interview um, in future episodes. And then Claire and I will catch up afterwards, both to talk about the interview and our learning points and takeaways from that, but also to catch up on kind of developments in the nutrition world um, and also how Claire and I's training and racing and all that sort of craziness um, gets on. So I, for now, I want to dive straight into the first interview of this series, which is with the amazing Sharon Davis. Sharon Davis, MBE. Uh, she's a former English competitive swimmer um, who represented Great Britain in the Olympics and the European Championships, as well as England um, in the Commonwealth Games. And Sharon has attended 12 consecutive Olympic Games, complete, competing in three of them uh, and then working in the media um, for BBC Sport. And she picked up along her journey Uh, A silver Olympic medal, two gold and two bronze medals at Commonwealth Games and two bronze medals at the European Championships. And in addition to working for BBC Sport, she's also like a a, a show that has um, uh, a lot of great memories for me. She was a gladiator and she was on Breakfast TV, a presenter on Breakfast TV. But in recent years, Sharon has received a lot of coverage for being outspoken on the discussion around transgender in sport. Um, So Claire and I wanted to really chat to her about fairness in sport, uh, about both in relation to drugs, which is where um, she became so passionate on these subjects um, from from her days of competing against um, drug fueled athletes and also uh, fairness with gender. We wanted to chat to her about the science behind the transgender discussion and also the abuse that she's received for speaking out about what she believes in. So I know you're going to absolutely love this fascinating and really detailed and, and brilliant interview with Sharon Davis. 33 Fuel produced award-winning natural sports nutrition and everything they do is led by their philosophy for performance health and for a fitter future 33fuel's awesome products have been fueling triathletes since 2012 as well as many of the world's best athletes from other sports like the england football team tour de france winners and triathlon world champs including four times ironman uh, world champ Chrissy Wellington who's been using 33fuel for years Uh, i personally love their products i particularly love their um, protein shape i think it's delicious but it's also not full of a load of junk Um, i love their um, meal replacement which is kind of brilliant for pre or post workout recovery Um, i love their chia gels actually they work really well for me but especially i love their energy bars and their protein bars they feel like um, a proper treat to eat as well as being packed full of real amazing goodness so, find out more about 33fuel.com. And if you use the code TRIBE ATHLON or click the link in the show notes, you'll get a very extra special discount on your order. So, Sharon Davis, welcome to the Tribe Athlon podcast. Really looking forward to chatting to you. I know we've got loads to chat about um, and obviously Claire's here joining us as well. So to kick things off, I always like to start with a story. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into swimming and your progression from that point up to your first Olympics?
2: Um, so first Olympics was at 13. So obviously, you know, quite early doors, really. And really? I, yeah, I, I learned to swim like every other kid, you know, that, that was mum and dad wanted me to be able to swim because it's a really important skill for us to have. It's important for safety that kids can swim. Um, it wasn't part of um, Ofsted in those days and part of, you know, what was expected at school, the national curriculum. In fact, I helped put that on the national curriculum when I when I retired the first time around. But we lived in Plymouth by the sea. We were always in the water. And so I was swimming, I suppose, by the time I was about two or three. I wasn't a six month old baby, you know, going down the pool, which sometimes people think that must have been what happened. But what happened was I progressed very quickly. So I did ballet and I rode ponies and I did all the other things that little young girls do. Um, And eventually swimming just took over. You know, I'm the perfect shape for a swimmer. You know, I've got a long body big paddles um you know it's it's yeah absolutely I I float really well um you know these are all things which help you to be a swimmer and as you know with every sport really it's all physics you know and at the end of the day swimmers all look pretty similar we're all we're a tall breed you know it's the same as a gymnast is likely to be a short breed you know it's what it's the tools that you need to do the job that you're doing Mm.
0: so and so how did that progress you know what point did you start taking swimming really seriously
2: I think probably um, nine, 10, I was swimming, I was Devon County champion at 10, senior champion. And I had my first junior international at 11, which was in Cheltenham, I think, Um, West Germany versus Holland and Great Britain. And then I was at the Olympic Games at 13. And I remember having this sort of eureka moment watching Mark Spitz win his seven gold medals at the 1972 Olympic Games with his handlebar moustache and his big row of medals. And I was probably eight or nine years old. But it is a moment where I go, oh, I remember that, that's really special. I would quite like to do that. And I think you'll find a lot of athletes have that, you know, a bit of a moment where they see it and they just think, yes, that's me. I'd like to
0: do that. That's incredible. And, and what, so... I suppose that, that prompts a couple of questions. Was you, Dad was coach right from the off, was he? Did you, his dad always been coach?
2: Nearly. Um, there was a gentleman called Ray Bickley. Um, so I was I was taught to swim at uh, Devonport Swimming Club in Plymouth. I was born in Devonport, so a real dockyard girl. Dad was in the Navy. Couldn't be more Plymouthian, to be honest with you. And then I joined Devonport Royal Swimming Club. I swam with a guy called Ray Bickley. And then Ray decided to retire. So my dad took over when I was about 11 because there was just nobody else to take over. So he was self-taught. You know, he was sporty, um, but he really knew nothing particularly about swimming. He just then read every book. And then from that sort of summer, every year he would go around, where is the best coach in the world? Are they in America, Canada, Australia, wherever? And we would go. So as soon as the swimming program was over, we'd pack up and we'd disappear to some part of the world where I'd just go training. And he'd just take notes constantly. Uh, and just read everything under the sun so you know huge admiration and he's still coaching my dad is 86 and he is still coaching now marching up and down a pool
0: that's fantastic and 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 do you still get involved with him and his coaching or do you leave him to that
2: no, not really. He's in London. Uh, he's Hemel Hempstead way. So he coaches a bit with Watford. It's more of a part time job now because he really can't do it. You know, every morning it's too, it's too much, but he still loves it and he still feels that he's got information to, to give to the kids. You know, he, he absolutely adores them swimming well um, and it makes him feel useful. You know, so it's yeah, it's it's still really good that he, he can you know, use his brain as well, marching up and down the pool. Um, it's that's his world. You know, mine really is with the BBC on the side of the pool. I've been there now for twenty-six years, which is ridiculous. Amazing. I've done. Ooh, what have I done? Twelve Olympic Games, um, and I haven't missed one since nineteen seventy-six. So I've either had a microphone in my hand, or I've obviously
0: been racing. Which, which I, we definitely need to sort of delve into that later on, as to because ha- I mean, there can't be many people that have seen that many Olympics along the way. So you, what well, you'll have, you'll have, you know, I'm sure you'll have seen some amazing trends um, over that time um but well I mean let's let's dive into that now so so tell us a little bit about what your first Olympics was like I mean what was I mean going to the Olympics at 13 is is astonishing so so what was that like?
2: Uh, Well I was 5'7 so I never really looked terribly 13 year old um and I think people see that going to a major event when you're very young is is very overwhelming well actually it's almost opposite Mm. because you know that you have other things in you so you're just like this massive sponge you know, you go to this event and you're wide eyed, you're taking it all and you're improving every single time you get into the pool to race. You know, you're going to get better. You probably know before you go, you're not going to win anything because you're just not at that level yet. But it, it's an opportunity to get vast experience. Um, for me, it's memories of the East Germans, because that obviously all started in the early 70s, 76, 80. They totally and utterly dominated. So these huge, great East German winning women that were winning everything. Um, you know and it was 50 meter pools all over the place it was an Olympic village it was 24 hour food it was mixing with the other sports which I'd never done before so it was a big eye opener but it never felt like it was a stressful situation because I always felt that the future was in front of me Um, whereas when you go to an Olympics when everyone is building you up and you're expected to win a medal that's when it becomes incredibly hard.
0: So how did you get on in your first Olympics?
2: I was 17th out of 32 that's all right isn't it I was kind of in the middle somewhere you know I would have made a semi-final nowadays which would have been pretty cool just about <laughs> so that sort of level um you know I, I, and I was improving and I came back actually some 200 meters backstroke and then I came back and started specializing in medals and then set the British record for the 400 meters individual medley and that's where I stayed after
0: that fantastic and so so tell us pick out a couple of highlights of your of your um your Olympic journey
2: uh, that particular one was bumping into, Ol- um, bumping into Olga Corbett in the in the dining hall and going into an, a dining hall in an Olympic village, which is the size of a football field. I mean, it's massive. It's open 24 hours a day. It's serving food from all over the world. It's all free. You just have this pass and everything is free. You know, it's the size of an Olympics, which is so fascinating. And the fact you rub shoulders with everybody from everywhere, you know, regardless of color, religion, country, sport, we're all just one big melting pot. It's just the most wonderful place. And so you sit there just watching people coming in, trying to work out where they come from, what they do, what sport they do, what how much they're eating. You know, if they're a gymnast, they've got a, an egg on a plate, you know, and if they're a weightlifter, the mountain of food is like this. And it, it's just, it, it's a phenomenal place to be. Um, there's nothing like it. You know, I love the Commonwealth Games. I'm very much looking forward to Birmingham coming up shortly. And obviously another multi-sport activity and home games, which is great. But there's nothing... Every, If you ask any athlete what medal they want to win, it will be
0: an Olympic one.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and so tell us about your Olympic medal. Tell us about tell us the story around winning your Olympic medal.
2: Um, So a lot of pressure reading up to the 1980 Olympics. You know, I came back from the Olympics in 76, won um, medals at European championships the following year, won two Commonwealth goals the following year after that when I was only 15. Um, Then I had glandular fever in 1979, a really difficult year. Didn't know it was glandular fever. Dad was quite tough, because when I was 11, I fell out of a tree and broke both my arms. And- um, And you
0: carried on swimming.
2: Yes. Yeah, so,
1: oh my goodness.
2: Tell,
1: tell us about that. <laughs> well, wow. I was, How did you carry on swimming?
2: Aha. Uh-huh. So I was a total tomboy. Um, I was up a tree, falling out of a tree, training with the boys, short hair, smelling of chlorine. And so I did exactly that. I went off into the woods, fell out of the tree, knew that I'd done something pick up my watch with my two fingers walked home my arms looked like a step you know so I walked into the kitchen and went dad I think I've broken my arm and he went oh for god's sake Sharon could support it with the other but no I think I've broken that one too so both bones and both arms had gone um had then put in plasters which in the old days was very much from here to here you know because the whole thing was like this and then two days later I had blue fingers so they reset the plasters About then two days later they rang up and they said we think you might have we should check because obviously we, we might have not set them properly. Went back. One of them wasn't set properly. So they took them off, We broke it, reset it. On the way back from the hospital, dad went, you've missed a week of, tra- week of training. And I went, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I have. And he went, well, we can't have that, can we? So we went to Tesco's. He picked up a load of plastic bags and he worked out how he could take these plastic bags around my arms. And I just found with two broken arms for three months. <laughs> I,
1: I <laughs> I must admit, kicking, but yeah, It's possible. I must admit that I've done exactly the same as well. I um. Yeah, it's what you can do, isn't it? You it's know. amazing. Yeah, actually, um, growing up down on the south coast as well, we um, all our family were farmers. So I actually had an AI glove that I put on and yeah. then some tape around it. So yeah, ingenuity.
2: The following year, I was running 100 meters at school. So the last time my dad said that I could run school sport. The field wasn't very good. Put my foot in a pothole, tore every ligament in my knee. My foot stayed in one place and everything just spun. And so my dad just tied my legs together. Three months of just doing arms only. And then I went to the Olympics the following year. So that preparation kind of works. But, you know, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, so, yeah, it does teach you what you're capable of doing. You know, that's the thing. What, you, what, what determination and perseverance and how incredible the human body is.
0: And, and it actually, I mean, I would imagine. Yeah, you're right in that when you're being forced to swim with your legs strapped together or forced to swim with two broken arms and and massive buoyancy aids attached to them um it must improve your strength it probably doesn't do a lot for your technique i would imagine but um but then when you get when you get kind of freed up it's um yeah i mean that's incredible so i I interrupted you you telling us the story about you winning your your medal so so carry on with that story
2: Um, Where was I with that story? So, yeah, I just think that leading up to 79, obviously, it was a difficult year also because um, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. So then Mrs. Thatcher turned around and said, well, I think all of our Olympic team should boycott. So not only was there, you know, glandular fever, there was a lot of expectation and pressure. There was knowing the East Germans were there and we couldn't do anything about the fact that they were taking stuff and we couldn't seem to catch them or stop them um there was this added pressure that we weren't even sure training six hours a day whether we were going to get to go and as you know as an you know as an athlete there usually only is one olympic window if you're lucky enough sometimes you might get two but for most of us there's one in a four year sort of space where you go this is the optimum time for me and that was probably where i thought mine was um So it was very difficult, you know, training for about three or four months, devoting six hours a day with no lottery funding those days, also trying to do my exams at school at the same time, not knowing when I was going to get to go to the games. And then Mrs. Thatcher turned around and said, well, we won't support you. The BOA said, well, we don't take any money from the government. So, you know, you can't really tell us that we shouldn't go because you don't financially control us. Good on them. And so a few of us went. But the, the team for London, for example, was 550 athletes for 2012. The team for Moscow was 150. So we were a tiny team, but we're predominantly people they thought would win medals or get into finals. We had no sponsors, so they all removed all their kit sponsor. We weren't able to do the opening ceremony. When we won our medals, we weren't allowed to put the Union Jack up. We weren't allowed to watch other athletes. We weren't allowed to go to, you know, weren't allowed to hang around. So we got sent home the moment we finished. So it was quite it was quite a sad Olympic Games from that perspective. But I will, um, I will always be forever grateful that the BOA stood up to Mrs. Thatcher and we got to go
0: well and uh, because as you, you said about I've heard you say on other um, podcasts that you know that um, it, the, the 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 athletes that were deprived of being in that sort of position you know we don't know the names of those athletes no. and in fact that that kind of you've mentioned already the um, the sort of uh, the drug taking of, of the eastern um, Germans uh, throughout that period and that's kind of how you you um, where your passion around transgender in sport has has been born from isn't it so so tell us a little bit about what you know what you experienced with the the drug taking while you were competing
2: so this was a a systematic in a state-run doping program um they put young girls on um, oral steranobol old-fashioned testosterone steroids during puberty they took anyone with any sort of talent so you could be a fairly average club athlete and they they put you on these drugs through puberty now we know because when the war came down we had access to all of their files so you know even though during the competition we knew because they would have athletes that came out of nowhere and we'd never seen them compete before and they would break world records so they hadn't done the progression which everybody else has to do um, as you're getting better They also looked and sounded, you know, very masculine. They had five o'clock shadows. They had very deep voices. They had terrible skin. You know, it it was very evident what was going on. And they had this vast success in the women's events and hardly any difference in the men's events. So, for example, in Moscow, when I won my silver medal, they won 90% of the women's medals in the swimming pool and less than 5% of the men's. So in most events, they took first, second and third. You know, it's just not possible. You know, it, we, we get very excited if America takes one, two, three, you know, in something in the sprinting. It's, but they don't turn around and win every single one of the races in one. Two. So it was so evident. And this was just going on games after games, competition after competition. We weren't doing out of season testing. They had East German doctors sitting on the doping panels. Um, you know, it, and I don't think they really cared. You know, these poor girls were just guinea pigs. You know, and what they were using had massive long term side effects. So I feel that the IOC drastically let people like me down. But they also let those young girls down because they did nothing to stop it. You know, and many of them have died. Um, They have huge nasty side effects now, which means that they're on heart pills and they've had sterility problems. Um, Not to mention the fact that obviously it just changed them, you know, physically as well, which they've had to live with. So it was a horrendous period of time. And that went on from the early 70s to when the war came down in 89. So it absolutely ruined the 76, the 80 Olympics, not the 84 because they boycotted in retaliation. And then the 88 Olympic Games as well, where sort of, you know, it was just beginning to change and people were beginning to realise what was going on. So it wasn't quite as dominant. But that was in rowing, track and field and swimming. Those are the three events that they actually decided to put this programme behind. And so when we went into the Stasi afterwards and did this wonderful documentary, they showed that they could make a 9% improvement By giving the girls um, male puberty, basically. And with that 9%, you know, they totally and utterly dominated. Well, as you will know, as athletes, you know, at the Olympic Games, there's anything between 10 and 30% difference between a male and female performance, 30% being very explosive activities like weightlifting, um, 10% being more sort of middle distance, you know, running, and everything in between. So swimming tends to be around the 12, 13, 14%. Uh, cycling, the same sort of thing, high jump, long jump, about 20%. So the more explosive it is, the more benefit there is through having male puberty. And things like boxing, for example, a feet you know, a male of equal weight, so not bigger, equal weight, will hit 160% harder than a female can hit. So in a contact sport, it's it's dangerous, you know, it's it's just crazy. So this was always my problem you know, it's nothing to do with being transphobic or having a problem with anyone that chooses to to, to transition um, that has gender dysphoria. I have nothing but empathy for anybody that, you know, is going through that. But I genuinely believe that female athletes deserve the same opportunity that males get. And when we spend millions of pounds trying to stop anyone from cheating and having the tiniest advantage To say that a female athlete is supposed to line up next to someone that has a massive advantage because of their biology is just not fair. So we have to have discussions about how we find better solutions, you know. And and what was happening that one side of the debate wanted to to debate and wanted to use science and the other side of the debate just wanted to close us down and call us names. And so that was what made it terribly
0: difficult. And, and so, so we'll come back to the transgender in sport piece in a minute, because I think that's, that's something we definitely want to explore some more. But with the, with the drug taking, um, was, was, was it being called out? You know, were athletes talking, you know, raising it as a concern? I mean, you say it was, it was obvious to you, yeah. because they've got the five o'clock Obviously, shadow. And...
2: Yeah, it was obvious to everybody. So everybody knew. And my father used to speak out, and then my father got, was never selected as an international coach because he was called a troublemaker um you know Shirley Babashoff who won a load of silver and bronze medals in 1976 got called a bad loser by the American media so it's a similar sort of thing that's been happening around the trans debate in the fact that anyone that tries to call out the situation gets called names and gets vilified by the media um, and it, it's almost it's ridiculous how similar it is in lots of ways you know and and I don't understand how anyone can turn around and, and, you know, and argue that we couldn't see what was going on at the time because we absolutely could. There is no way that anyone in the world wins 90% of the women's events and hardly anything of the men's, you know, a tiny little country like East Germany that before 1976 won nothing. It's just, you know, it's just not possible.
0: And there's a, there's a lady that whose name now escapes me ironically that you, you mentioned in one of the interviews I listened to where she came forth, but, She's fourth to three East German swimmers. So, you know, she would have had a gold medal.
2: Yeah, would have had a totally different life, wouldn't she? That's Anne Osgoby that you're talking about. She was fourth in the hundred butterfly. Um, we had quite a few people actually that would have won medals on the British team. In fact, I would have won a second medal if it hadn't been for East Germans as well. So, you know, their whole lives would have been different and no one remembers who comes fourth ever. Even though it's an incredible achievement, you know, that there's no way that you're going to be able to make a career out of coming forth, unfortunately. And she was only beaten by East Germans. So, you know, yeah.
0: And, and it is really, I mean, it is incredibly so I, I can't remember which book I was reading that almost argued uh, at, at times in it that there should be some uh, performance enhancing drugs allowed because it's so impossible to police them all. But in the same book, it talks about, you know, the, the um, detrimental effects the, that it had on on those East German girls that, yeah, as you say, some of them uh, are no longer with us. Um, I, th- I think some transitioned through to men because that was kind of the effect it had on them in their teenage years. Because um, the
2: problem with that is if we turned around and say, well, let's allow some drugs, it would just become a competition of the chemists. Yeah. And it would become yeah, a competition of the countries that have the least regard for their athletes and for human rights and for human health. Mm. You know, it, so, you know, without meaning to put too much of a fine point on it, China would win everything because they would just get told this is what we're going to do. And you are just going to do this. You know, yeah. whereas other countries that could have more common sense about them, and hopefully would, would check things a bit better, wouldn't wouldn't be prepared to go down those avenues just yet. Um, we can't have a, a competition. that's about pharmacists. You know, it's got to still be about the human ability to be the best. So we've got to fight the good fight. otherwise we would give in on so many other things. We just go, well, why bother to fight crime? You know it, it's the same concept, isn't it? We're always just trying to be a decent, fair and honest society, and that's got to, to you know cross over into sport really.
0: And, and just while we're on this drugs point, what we what have you made of of how Russia have been treated with their state drug program?
2: Um, I'm just utterly disgusted in the IOC. I've never been undisgusted in the IOC. <laughs> You know, I just think historically they have a horrendous um, track record of not doing the right thing. And they did exactly the same thing with the East German situation. They allowed that to go on for 20 years. Then we had Sochi and they did absolutely nothing. You know, I found it heartbreaking in Rio. I'm, I'm on the side of the pool and we had Russian athletes that had received two bands that were still swimming, you know, right after Sochi i mean it was just extraordinary what was going on and then we have you know the olympic games put in beijing with with you know the human rights history it's been about the money it's not about the athletes i mean i don't know whether you're aware but you know 7% of what the ioc makes which is vast goes back to the athletes 7%
0: and, and so yeah i mean it just seems astonishing that it it should it's not there to Protect the athletes and improve the athletes. It it it's clearly a. I mean, where does all that money go?
2: Into expenses, you know, into lovely, wonderful tax havens where they have their centre out in in Switzerland and into all sorts of other things. But it certainly doesn't go into the pockets of the athletes. Um, I just find it so depressing, you know, that that, that we have. Something as important as the Olympic Games, the IOC, and it really isn't the bastion that everybody would want it to be. And that's what's so frustrating. And when the trans rules changed in 2015, you know, of course, people on the, in the trans lobby were saying, well, here's the IOC making these rules. It must be absolutely correct because they're doing it. And I'm going, no, no, their track record is not particularly wonderful with regards to doing the right thing. There was no science involved. They didn't they didn't consult coaches or athletes. They certainly didn't ask the female athletes. The only people they consulted were trans activists and a transgender um, woman scientist with a very flawed study based on retired middle-distance runners, eight of them. And, and, you know, it was horrendous. I mean, and then since then, they've got even worse. They've turned around and gone, well, we're now going to back away from even setting a limit on testosterone whatsoever and just pass the buck to, to, the, to the different governing bodies. And everybody has just been passing the buck and been frightened to do anything. So, you know, I'm so proud of FINA that they have come out And at last done something, but it's taken seven years. Can you believe it's seven years since the governing body has asked a single competing athlete, female athlete, what they thought it took seven years to ask a female athlete, how they felt about it.
0: Wow. And and do you want to, for those people that aren't sort of well read on this or think actually, you know, is there a really, you know, if the hormones are brought back into, into, um, you know, some sort of reasonable level, Is there a hormonal advantage and is there a physical advantage um, if you are born male, but then transition to being a female? So can you explain the science behind both hormonal advantage and physical advantage?
2: Okay, so basically what FINA has done is they have decided to set the limit on male puberty, which is what we've always been talking about. It's what I've been always been talking about is male puberty and creating a female protected classification and an open and inclusive classification. You know, anyone that loves sport wants everyone to be involved in sport. There's never been about trying to get anybody banned from sport. And when newspapers use the word banned, it's so artificial and unfair and incorrect because no one's ever been banned. They've only been banned from a classification that they don't belong in. So they've always been able to do sport. They just have to do it with the other people in that race has the same biology as them. Uh, They've been banned from the women's class because they're male, you know, or they're banned from the under-12s because they're 15, or they're banned from the lightweights because they're a heavyweight, you know, so that's the whole point of classifications. If we didn't have classifications, young, fit, healthy men would win everything. That's it. You know, disabled people wouldn't win anything, children wouldn't win anything, and women wouldn't win anything. So, you know, we have these classifications to press to, to enable success across, uh, across society in sport. Now, testosterone is what comes in, obviously, with, with young boys, about 11, 12. Um, my son's 15. It's bursting out on them all over the place at the moment. It, it's just crazy. And he's you know, a young rugby player. Um, it makes an absolutely huge difference. Having said that, though, males also benefit from being taller, having different bone structure. Having different Q angle, which is your angle from your hip to your knees, which we know creates a lot more injuries in women than it does in men because we have a wider hip because of childbirth. None of these things are ever going to be changed by reducing your testosterone levels. And all of the testosterone levels that we have in place at the moment still do not bring you down to women's levels. So men's testosterone levels are anywhere between 7.7 to about 30 nanomoles of testosterone per litre of blood. Most women are under one. If you've got endometriitis, you might go up to about two, but then you've got all the problems that come with endometriitis, which are not very nice. So so the vast majority, including Olympians, extremely successful Olympians, including myself are all under one nanomole of testosterone per liter. Now, if I was to compete tomorrow with the testosterone that say Emily Bridges is allowed to compete with in British cycling, I would receive an instant four year ban. So again, I find that extremely hard to understand how that is okay even so she's benefited from male puberty and she's also allowed to have five times what I have in my system and if I put in my system what she has I would get a ban
0: as well as having then the the um adv- advantage of having the better cue angle which yes cyclist is actually shown to
2: really important in uh, cycling you know, it's it's very because it creates where you can get the power you know so that and that benefit will never go from Emily Bridges she will always have that ben- benefit And to me, that's not fair. You know, when we spend so much money trying to stop people from cheating in in, in cross sport, but obviously we are fighting so that men can have fair sport, why are the governing bodies not fighting so that women can have fair sport? Why were we just expected to move over? And again, the other thing that's that's ironic and and ridiculous is that transgender men, so biological females, still opt to compete with the women. So both at the NC2As and at the Olympic Games, the transgender and non-binary athletes that we had competing or chose to compete with the women. So they can identify as whatever gender they want to, but they still find it perfectly capable of racing with their biological sex. And that's again, what I feel is very important. You know, if you, why, yes, identify however you like, but race where it's fair.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think um, one of the ones that I heard you talking about was, um, and I can't remember again I can't remember the name of the athlete but um, as a as a guy I think was 500th in the USA out of all university athletes and then yeah. suddenly went yeah. um, as a female went straight through to being number one in the world.
2: Yeah you're talking about Leah Thomas so Leah Thomas was competing at, at Penn State University um, was a very average distance male swimmer swam you know, competitively up to the age of 21, then decided that they wanted to transition, um, and then competed in the NC2As earlier this year and became NC2As champion, beating three American Olympic medalists, and was over was I think 662 or something in the NC2As and as a male was further down the line if you want to include all American male swimmers. So these aren't people at university. These are just across the whole of America. So that would put her somewhere at 1,000. And if you want to include all swimmers around the world, that would probably wouldn't even put her in the top 3,000. And yet still went and beat three American Olympic medalists at the NC2As. As a distance swimmer, so that's a bit like Mo Farah deciding he wants to run the 100 and winning a medal. That's how ridiculous the whole thing was. Yeah. And six foot four to top it all off, you know. I mean, it, it couldn't be more ridiculous. And just to make it even worse, this week, Charlie, the NC Two As have nominated Leah Thomas to be female athlete of the year, even though Leah Thomas now, based on FINA rules, cannot go forward, cannot compete. As FINA have said it's unfair.
0: It, it just yeah, I mean, the whole thing is bizarre, isn't it? I, mean, I also remember hearing you say that in Rio, I think it was the eight hundred meters, the all three ladies on the podium were actually males yeah so
2: they're all dsd so differences of sexual development old-fashioned language intersex which doesn't exist and anyone that is dsd hates the term intersex because it infers that they're an intersex which doesn't exist because people with dsd are still male or female um but someone like castor Semenya is what they call dsd 5 ard and that means that castor was born with internal testes so castor is fully fledged 46 x y male but because born with internal testes, as a youngster, was picked up, didn't see the testes and just went, this must be a little girl, but went through male puberty. So the first three at the Rio Olympic Games in the 800 were all DSD males. So the first female in that race came fourth.
0: Wow. I mean, it's, it is absolutely astonishing. I, I, I mean, But what, what's more astonishing is that I didn't know that until I listened to you speaking about this you know, this stuff isn't publicized and it no. isn't talked about and the, the people that there's, there's not many people that are, have been talking about it. I know that you, you um, rallied, I think something like 60 top athlete athletes to, um, to sign a, a letter to, to, um, to support the, the open um, categorization, but only I think only five out of those 60 actually have publicly spoken about this. And, um, I get I get the impression that you've had quite a lot of of abuse for speaking out. You've lost earnings for speaking out. So tell us a little bit about that and how and your thoughts around that.
2: Yeah. So after the the rule change, um, you know, I gathered sixty of my friends, literally in a weekend, um, including people like Paula Radcliffe and Kelly and, and, and Sally who have spoken out. But of those sixty people that signed the letter to the IOC, asking for them to do the research. So that's what we asked them to do is just do the science first, please, before you change the rules, because you don't have any science that supports what you're doing. None at all. So and which was totally ignored. I don't think we even had a response to the letter. And of those 60 people, every single one of them being Olympic medalists or world champions, um, only about half a dozen have actually stepped their head above the parapet. And most of them, you know, even if they have, have said very little and then kind of ducked away again and, and carried on, which is fair enough because it is it is horrendous. I mean, the abuse you get is extraordinary. You know, I've had threats to my family, to my home, to me. They call up my employers. They call up my sponsors. They call up all the companies, all the charities that I work for. You know, it's absolutely horrendous. But my personal conscience, because of what I went through in the 70s and the 80s with the East Germans, just would not allow me to sit still and do nothing and just go, I've got my medal. I can sit back. It doesn't matter if this generation loses out. Because that's what happened to me, you know, my generation. And I was one of those lucky ones that managed to get a medal and had a career off of it. So I felt this was very much sex discrimination because sport nowadays isn't something we all do on a Saturday morning for a bit of fun. You know, this is a fully fledged proper career Mm -hmm. uh, with earning capacity and the opportunity to, you know, to become a pundit afterwards and all sorts of things that it can help you launch later in life. So we're we're taking away the opportunities for biological females to have the same opportunities of a sporting career as well as being able to just you know win medals and get experiences.
1: What what do you what do you feel is preventing people back back in the times when you were competing, but also now? What what do you think is preventing people speaking out? Is is it the abuse, or is it their athletes that are competing now are concerned about their own careers or their sponsors? Like what, what do you feel? It's kind of the main factor.
2: Yeah, the athletes themselves have been told not to speak. So they have found it very difficult. A lot of them will retweet my tweets. The braver ones will retweet my tweets. I was getting one phone call a week at one stage from athletes and coaches, some of them absolutely in tears because they did not know how to deal with it. They were close to walking away from their jobs. Um, you know, they have. we have had no backbone um, from British NGBs in this country whatsoever. I am so proud, again, of triathlon for coming along, they've gone one step even further than, than Fena, you know, because there's this little bit of a gray area around what age someone could start taking puberty blockers. Uh, and, and British triathlon have gone, nope, we're going to, we're going to draw the line full stop at biological female. um, mm-hmm. um You know, and we're going to create this open classification. So we want everyone to be involved, but we are going to protect both sexes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm hoping that FINA will go that way as well eventually, because at the moment they've got a bit of a moving feast with a consultation that's going on for six months about whether they create an open classification, whether they do something extra, you know, or whether they bolt the open classification onto the men's or whatever. So they've got this sort of six-month consultation period. So we'll know come January um, what they're going to do next. But I- I'm very hopeful that World Athletics will also follow suit. Mm-hmm triathlon will follow suit you know and that we could create a snowball that comes down a mountain where all the sports turn around and do what they should have been doing right from the word go which is to protect female athletes as well
0: because it strikes me that yeah um it's been it's taken so long to get female sport nearly (sighs) yeah on a a level and we're still not there we're miles away still you know Uh, well exactly that's why i say nearly because i think i mean there is a huge effort to get it up there you know as a, as a, as a father of two girls i want to see female sport doing doing well and i think you know there's certain organisations like the bbc is doing a fantastic job of just kind of you know i th- I, th- I can't remember who said it but if you can't see it you can't be it and so they they're putting it out there and i think that that's that's really really good but then this seems like a massive backward step
2: but here's a, here's a really interesting statistic so in the 1976 olympic games we had a, a wonderful dutch sprinter called ina Brigitte. And Ina Brigitte was beaten to third by two East Germans. Now, she's black. She would have been a black Olympic champion back in 1976. Wow. That would have changed so much for so many people. Yeah. And then, you know, again, it's kind of disappeared off for decades again. And and now we're fighting all the time to get people to recognize that you can be from anywhere and you can be any color and, and be an amazing swimmer. You know, some of it's cultural but and and that some of it is like you said see it to do it you know and that's that's very very important as well we still only as as female athletes get 10 percent of the airtime or the newspaper space 10 percent. wow so if you go on like just to say go on to the times today and you look at their sports page you know they'll probably have 12 14 stories you'll be lucky if there's one or two there that talks about women
0: well, you'll be pleased to know triathlon is at least 50%, if not a slight bias towards female athletes. No,
2: I, Well, there are some sports, aren't there? And swimming was always one. You know, I've always been really lucky that I've been in a sport that's had wonderful equality. You know, I never even thought about it. And what's so weird is I find myself now being introduced to Sharon Davis, the feminist. I had never thought of myself as the feminist ever in my life until the last few years, you know, because it just didn't occur to me. I was... Brought up in the 80s of Mrs. Thatcher waving a flag saying, You can be anything you want to be, girls, go out there, you know? And that's what I really believed. And I was in a sport where I got the same amount of space as the guys got. It's only really been in the last few years that I've noticed the incredible misogyny just soaking into, into society in general, but it's been obviously very, you know, bad in my in my area. And that's why I just thought, well, no, I'm not putting up with this. My mum used to tell me how in the how she bought her first house with my dad. And my granddad had supplied the money for their deposit, and my mum wasn't allowed to be on the mortgage because in those days they did not allow women to be on the mortgage. Wow! I just think now my mum would be proud that I've because she died sadly four years ago. And you mentioned that you know how hard it's been. I've used my mum's money up. So my mum left me some money. She left me about eighty thousand pounds. I've used every penny up to keep myself afloat, to be able to fight this.
0: Can you can you give us an an example of how that's impacted you as as Uh, financially as it uh, as much as it has
2: just because I'm not being I'm not you know work's not coming my way because agents don't want the hassle they don't want the aggro it's not even as if they don't disagree they just don't want to be they don't want to be targeted by the trans activists they just don't want the hassle and so you know if there's three of us going for the same job then I just don't get a look in really Um, the BBC have have stood by me, which is great. Um, I'll be at the Commonwealth Games and I'll be at the European Championships. And I do feel that things are turning now. You know, I've had a few inquiries recently. Um, You know, I've got some other things that I'm very passionate about that I'm working on as well. But it it does feel at long last, people are beginning to be less frightened to speak. And and it's only ever been about, let's find a respectful way that we can deal with this because nobody wants anyone not to be involved in sport and you mentioned triathlon you know I, I'm pretty sure that you guys are like us we train together as as sex so you know it's not like we have all the girls over here and all the boys over here in training I train with boys most of my life it was only when I came to compete that we went in our, our own you know separate races so there is no reason why everyone can't train together however you want to identify it's only when you come to race this is about the biology that you have not the feeling that you would like to be, you know, and suppressing testosterone after going through male puberty is going to make practically no difference whatsoever.
0: Yeah. And, and um, I mean, I, I, I always think that triathlon is an incredibly open and um, uh, kind of forward thinking sport, you know, having come to it fairly late in, in life. Um, if, if that's, I'm not sure whether that's right or not, but late in my, as a percentage of my life, it's, it's always struck me as a very forward thinking sport. Um, but we, what you just said kind of makes me think about, um, the teenagers that are starting to take the, the hormone treatments earlier. And in fact, I think even in the U S and the, and, and, and North other, you know, in Canada, it's being pushed by drug companies, which Yes. when you look at what's happened with opioids is absolutely frightening
2: and uh, often the same company actually funnily enough
0: yes yeah horrible
2: well, but, old adage that follow the money
0: yeah yeah exactly and i mean i know it's not your area of sort of expertise but do you have any thoughts on um before we move away from transgender any thoughts on people uh, you know is there any science around the, the long-term impact of people
2: no there's of no scientific proof either that that um you know that gender dysphoria is any different than someone who has anorexia so it's a dysphoria and it was only when the world health organization moved it out of a mental health issue that we've had this kind of explosion and so it, it, there is social contagion you know you can take areas of the united kingdom for example swindon it has three times the national average you know the, of of young girls that think they're transgender well that isn't because in swindon they've got loads of people that have gender dysphoria it's a social contagion yeah so it's it's very worrying, you know, if you're gonna put them on puberty blockers and puberty blockers are gonna stop their brains from maturing through puberty. Historically with gender dysphoria, 80% of young kids that, that show gender dysphoria, if they have cognitive therapy and they're they're supported through puberty, 80% come out the other side as gay. But now what's happening is that we're putting young people, younger and younger and younger on drugs, which will have massive side effects and will mean that they will be on drugs for the rest of their lives. Whether that's where they decide to de-transition, the damage that will be done will probably mean that they will have to be you know, medicalized in some shape or form forever, and there will be side effects. And that does really worry me. It does really worry. But it, as you say, it's not my area of expertise. It's just the area that I've had to learn about to know the whole subject, and it was really important that I understood the whole subject. And that's where J.K. Rowling has come in for so much flack. You know, that's her area, really, where she's trying to fight for safeguarding of young people, that they're not making mistakes, which all young people do, because we all did it just the same, but these are mistakes which they might be paying for for a long time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think it is that bit is the bit that I find frightening, particularly when, as you say, follow the money. And guess what? Yeah, it's 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 about drug companies making uh, making
2: drug companies putting massive amounts of money. I mean, the Democratic Party in America is predominantly supported by the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is um, frightening. Um, So, one thing that um, I remember hearing you say when you um, uh, when I saw you speak um, at a at a conference that I was also speaking at um, was that I I can't remember whether it was in your talk or whether it was um, a question that was asked afterwards. But I got and this was quite a few years ago, so forgive me if I was, uh, I'm was inaccurate, but I think you, you said that you wouldn't put, as much as you absolutely loved going to swim training and all of that sort of stuff um, as a kid, you wouldn't have put your children through the same kind of intensity of, of, of training or the same style. Am, am I right in saying that? And tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Um, yes, I guess no. I mean, absolutely. I wanted to make sure that my kids had a much broader base than me because I was involved in in very competitive sports so terribly early and my dad had through no fault of his own you know he genuinely believed that a day miss was a day that the competition had on me so he was really tough and he pushed way too hard harder than he needed to which knocked a lot of the enjoyment out of it for me you know I, when I won my medal I couldn't wait to stop and and really I didn't want to stop it was just I needed a break. And in those days, you couldn't have a break. So I went to University of America on a scholarship, found that I would have to be really into swimming serious to maintain my scholarship, came back to the UK, did a program called Give Us a Clue, which you're too young to remember, but it was a silly quiz show. They paid me 40 pounds and they branded me a professional and then they wouldn't let me compete anymore. And that was at the same time as Sebco and Steve Ovette were racing each other every weekend, being paid a lot of money to put into a trust fund, Andy Norman, all of that period. And I was branded for 40 quid. So, you know, there's been a few things, a few nice big hurdles in my life. So swimming has always been a bit of a a challenge. And I just felt five o'clock in the morning, six hours a day, smelling of chlorine. There were other sports that maybe they could do, but they all swam really well. They swam at club level. Um, Finn in particular, my youngest is 15, would have made a very, very good swimmer. Huge, great feat. Um, But they used it as a base for other things. So Elliot, my eldest, went on to play rugby at fairly decent level, um, he's 28. He was offered a contract at uh, Newport Dragons, but chose to turn it down. He's now doing really well in recruitment, has got his own business. And Gracie did track and field, competed for England when she was 15, 16, 17. And then she got an navicular bone in her foot that just would not heal. And so it just kept breaking season after season. So after struggling with that until she was about 20, she decided to, to stop. And now she works in London in an advertising agency. She's doing great. And then there's young Finn, who's six foot one and is on Bath Rugby Academy. Um, and he swam and he cycles and he does all sorts of things. But they've all been good swimmers. You know, they just did not want to be a swimmer. And I think some of it was about also being compared to mum. I like the idea of them making their own way, doing something else rather than coming in behind, you know, in, in any shape or form, being in my shadow or being compared all the time. I wanted them to do their own thing.
0: Well, I think as we talked about before the before we started recording the episode, it, it, it's, it teaches you so much. Both from a fitness point of view, but also from a discipline point of view, doesn't it? And it it sets you up so well for for other things. And I think actually, um, there's a book called um, Range by David Epstein. I think it is um, brilliant book. But he talks he talks about how in this day and age. There's too much specialism too early. In fact, the, the analogy I, I seem to remember he uses is he says with doctors, they're getting so specialized that he now needs to check that an ear surgeon is not a left ear surgeon as opposed to a, 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 just any ear surgeon. Um, and, and actually, the people that are becoming most successful in today's environment often have got this really wide range of different experience. And that sets them up for being very good at something later on because they're bringing in different, different um, elements
2: well coming to your sport slightly later you know even adam adam really didn't come to his sport until quite late to be honest so it's about the longevity of your sport it's about taking little breaks it's about maintaining your passion for it you know and and obviously lottery funding makes a huge difference because these guys now can be full-time athletes you know and they can take decent breaks they don't have to get up at five o'clock in the morning you know they can have a nice house and a decent car and even have a family and you know and juggle their lives and and have the the full career that that, that they deserve and that they want. So Lottery has been a massive success. And again, I'm quite proud that I to launch that back with John Major. I remember being in a hot air balloon going up with the chancellor and talking about it, (laughs) you know, and this, it's, yeah. I mean, I've seen so many changes. I've seen the Olympics go from something which crippled our country, you know, in in Montreal in 1976 to this in L.A. where it totally changed to this commercial vehicle that it is now and, and, and what it's grown into. It's been fascinating. And every Olympics has a really special feel about it. You know, I remember 2000 being obviously, I think in Sydney, and that was all about being the Green Olympics and the first games makers and all that sort of stuff. And then Athens was the celebration of 100 years. And there we were in front of the Acropolis the last time we swam outdoors. And that felt like it was the right place to be. And so each Olympics has a real, you know, feel. Um, China, 2008, you know. All about technical, all about China trying to show what they could do, the biggest and the best, spent the most amount of money, the biggest fireworks display, and so on and so forth. But actually being quite grey and being quite contained, and the security was horrendous behind the scenes. And then Rio, oh my god, how we ever got through Rio. I don't know how your friends in Triathlon spoke to you, but how we ever got an Olympic games that came out of Rio in one piece, I will never know, because behind the scenes it was bedlam. You know, it really was. There was no infrastructure, we had green swimming pools, it, it was just mad. But and then of course I was in Tokyo you know, which was another experience altogether. I didn't get to leave my room for three weeks, apart from to get on a bus, go to the pool, do the interviews and get back on a bus again. I ate my food. I did everything in that room for three weeks. It was, yeah.
0: And, and amongst all of them, how does 2012 compare?
2: The best. Absolutely the best. Not that um, we
0: be biased, of course.
2: No, of course not. <laughs> no, um, part of the big team for, for 2012. So, you know, love the fact that we started off trying to fight the whole of the The British taxi business saying that we wanted the Olympic Games and everybody seemed to be so against it and said it would cripple the city and so on. It was amazing Olympics and even silly things like the security. I don't know if you remember, but the security kind of went down. The security company that was employed to do all the security went bust. And then we had to bring all the army in and the army were amazing. And they were so happy to be there and the police were singing and dancing and people were talking to each other on the tube. And, you know, we packed out the Olympics, we packed out the Paralympics And we were very clever at how we did it. We left a decent legacy. We left great facilities that are still being well used. Um, And that's something that I think is very much part of the Olympic movement now is how we can build facilities, how we don't create white elephants, you know, what we what we do going forward that are multi-purpose and multi-use and a development of what we've got rather than everything starting from scratch every time.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's got to be it's got to be sustainable as opposed to just loss making, which is absolutely crazy in this day and age, isn't it? Um, so one of the things uh, that's uh, that's happened in lockdown is that a lot of pools have been closing. Certainly the the closest pool, I didn't actually swim in this particular pool, but the closest pool to me um, closed during lockdown. And I hadn't realized until listening to you speak recently that um, actually this is a big problem across the UK and, and not just in lockdown, but forecasting going forward. Um, what? Why is that? So, so tell us a little bit about what's going on there.
2: Yeah, so here's a really interesting statistic. We lose more people drowning than we do in car crashes and fires combined, children. So, yeah, so we still have a big problem with drowning statistics. You know, we're a small island with rivers, canals, beaches all over the place. And weather like this that we're having at the moment just, you know, brings people out to do silly things. So it's really important that our kids can swim. Um, It's part of the national curriculum. At the moment, only 50% of our children are leaving primary school being able to swim 25 metres, they're all supposed to be able to do that. It doesn't happen. We lost 250 pools during COVID. Uh, councils used it as an opportunity to run their facilities down that weren't making money and then basically to say we can't afford to reopen them. Um, and it's predicted by Swim England that we'll lose at 2,000 by the end of the decade, which is, which is horrendous. You know, in a sport that is from cradle to grave, could be for everybody at any time in your life and is a lifesaver. So I, I got involved with a company called Paragon a couple of years ago. So how, do we, how do we fix this problem? How do we, you know, come up with facilities that we can build quicker, we can build cheaper, that are just as beautiful, just as, you know, environmentally friendly. Their, their footprint is really good. Um, and we we imported um, this stuff from America, which is like tension membranes. And they come with a 50-year guarantee for the actual structure, a 25-year guarantee for the outside And they are hurricane-proof. So they get used a lot up in Scotland on the coast. So the press argument is, oh, they're going to get blown away. Well, absolutely, it's the opposite. You know, they're they're designed to to weather amazingly bad weather. Um, And they're beautiful. And they're clean. And they're inviting. And they're cheap in comparison. They're about a third cheaper than a standard build. And they're also cheaper to run. So, But we need to get councils to think outside of the box and to do something slightly different than what they've done in the past. And And that's that's
0: the challenge. Did you say that was called Paragon Pool?
2: Paragon Structures. So right. they're based here in Bath. So I thought, well, I love this idea. I'm, I'm going to buy some shares because I'm passionate about getting leisure facilities and people being fitter and healthier. And this is a really good solution. You know, this works and it saves money.
0: Well, I will be, I will be contacting Rutland County Council because Rutland now has, does not have a public pool in the whole county. I mean, and it's, it's only a small crazy, county, it? but it's absolutely crazy.
2: Yeah, absolutely crazy. You know, this is one of the sports that you can do if you're pregnant, if you're disabled, if you're old, if we're playing with the family. You know, it, it's really, it's a really important sport. I mean, there are lots of wonderful sports out there. You know, of course, but swimming is also a lifesaver. So all kids should be able to swim.
1: And I know Sharon, you do quite a bit with disability um, sport and para sports, don't you? Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. In fact, I used to do stuff with Stoke Mantle before it even became the Paralympic. Oh
1: okay so, yeah way way back in the days yeah and I was just thinking like some of my background being clinical and working in hospitals and working with spinal injuries and, and things like that you know water is one place where no matter whether that's a hydrotherapy pool or in a pool with somebody that they can actually have some sort of independence and I think you know that is just so important and the fact that pools are disappearing and being taken away um, and you know I I've even seen that kind of working with people that there isn't anywhere to go yeah Um,
2: and it's got to be affordable too hasn't it you know this is about councils turning around and going okay we need to provide this as a public service we have rising obesity rates we have a national health service that cannot keep up so rather than just throwing more money constantly into the national health service we have to go right prevention has got to be part of our cure you know, so if we can have people fitter and healthier, you know, I was very much hoping that one of the things that was going to come off the back of COVID was that people would understand that if you were fitter and healthier, you stood a better chance of being able to fight COVID. Mm. And this is the same for everything. Mm. So, you know, we have got to stop abusing our children. They need to understand what health and fitness is all about. And we need to give them the habits when they're young that they can have for the rest of their lives. And we're just not doing that. You know, it's a really big issue going forward that statistically we had just getting worse year on year on year. And during COVID, it, you know, it doubled how bad it got over that space of that, that couple of years. So we've got to work out how we subsidise the government. I, my next project, after I can tackle the whole transgender thing and get fair sports sorted out, is to go, right, I want mandated at national level that the government has to say to councils, you must provide facilities. And particularly in areas of deprivation, and they must be affordable so that people can use them.
1: And of, and of course, the Commonwealth in Birmingham, we've got a new pool, haven't we? Just just living down the road I from that. Yeah, so. we have.
2: Can you believe, though, that Birmingham didn't have one? You know, the Second City did not have a 50 metre pool, so that was always a big
1: I guess we we do it at the university, but I don't know the ins and outs of it, but you can't compete in it. You'll probably yeah. know the reason why. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I'm not sure if it's a six lane. I've got a funny feeling it might be a bit narrow. I'm honestly not sure. But of yeah. course, being a private pool, because it'll be privately owned by the university anyway. Um, but no, there wasn't a public facility, you know, in Birmingham for absolutely years. So I'm really pleased that that's there. The, the Alexander Stadium has been, you know, all redone, which is beautiful. I saw Derek at the weekend. He was telling me all about the stadium. Um, yeah, no, very excited. You know, home games are amazing. Commonwealth Games we had last time in Glasgow, sort of one games ago, because the last ones were in the Gold Coast. Um, you know, we're getting them. I think bidding, you know, you mentioned London. That was what London did, I think. London made us realise that we could hold games and we could do a fantastic job of it. And so that inspires our youngsters to want to be involved because people can go and watch. You know, And I know that tickets have been flying out for the Commonwealth Games. And you know, the pool ones went ages ago because we, we don't have an awful lot of space. Um, you know, I think we, I don't know whether we've got that, that 6,000 or something like that, but, you know, they go very, very quickly. And of course, the competition at the Commonwealth Games is very high. Because we have the Australians and the Canadians that happen to, you know, they're two of the biggest forces in women's swimming in the world at the moment. So we are, you know, going to see some great swimming in the swimming pool. And yeah. it's
1: certainly certainly a buzz in in Birmingham at the moment. I think, and and you know, I think it gets people, doesn't it, in thinking about sport that aren't necessarily sporty, but like, then it creates an interest, doesn't it, as well?
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. And we, do you know what? We need some positivity too, because we've had such a tough couple of years. And we're very, very polarised at the moment. You know, politics has been very polarising. Life has been very polarising. We've been very depressed and and, and rather negative. And I think something like the Commonwealth Games is very much needed. You know, I was very lucky to be on the 1980s, 1990s bus. I'm going to do myself down. 1990s bus at the pageant. I saw Um, Oh, my God, that was such a lovely day, you know. Yeah, I'm now going to put national treasure on my CV. <laughs> but it was such a gorgeous day because everybody was so happy and it was so positive. And we need a bit more of that. We absolutely need some more of that.
0: You mentioned about society becoming more polarized. I, I was thinking the same. I've been thinking the same thing. And I, I wonder whether social media has a significant role in that, in that it's forcing people to be more one, you know, more black or more white when actually generally speaking, the majority of people should usually be grey in whatever it is, whether it's politics, whether it's transgender well, whatever it is. Do you you think that that's the case?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think all sorts of things, even like the Black Lives Matter campaign. You know, my daughter organised the rally in Bath and she did it really well and it was done, um, you know very calmly and everybody cleaned up after themselves. And then you had the same one over in Bristol where mayhem, you know, and people were throwing statues in the river and the docks and goodness knows what. And it was just an excuse for a lot of people who probably would have been a football thug at one stage to decide that this was their cause. And I think we've, we've, created, we've created this division, which doesn't really exist. You know, when we were doing all of the work for the 2012 Olympic Games, it, one of the statistics that came out, which was so great, was that London's the most diverse city in the whole world. The most languages were spoken in London than any other city in the world. Wow. And I'm a big believer that we are quite a live and let live country. Mm. You know, I grew up, I suppose, not seeing colour, not seeing religion, not seeing sexuality. I honestly don't care who you sleep with. It's none of my business. And it certainly doesn't, it's not the most interesting thing about you. You know, not you particularly,
0: Charlie, but <laughs>
2: it's anybody. Like, I'm much more interested in your character than I'm interested in who you sleep with. You know, it, it, and I just think we've, we've, we started creating all these boxes for everybody and everybody's got to be fitted neatly into a box. And humans don't do that very well, really. You know, we change character, we move, we grow. You know, what we feel today might be different from what we feel tomorrow. And that's part of being being a human and i hate all the, the box ticking thing i'm you know with the passion
0: yeah i think it's um yeah i think the whole the black lives matter thing is is a you know, ultimately all lives matter don't know that's that's, it that's the important thing for me um but yes whether whether you know we should be pulling down statues i mean what's gone in the past has gone in the past you know we live need in to learn-
1: don't we
2: you know we need to spend less time worrying about the slavery of 250 years ago which we can do absolutely nothing about and more about the slavery that's happening right now yeah you know and and that's what we should be bothered about that's what we should be putting all our effort into because we can't change the past all we can do from it is learn from it and actually sometimes we need those statues sitting there so that we don't forget about the past
0: yeah yeah and actually, so I hadn't ever thought about this, but I, I heard you say that, you know, ultimately the pyramids and the Great Wall of China came as a result of slavery. But nobody's, nobody's pretty, much, yeah. pretty
2: much everything. You know, even if you look, even if you look at, I don't know, how New York was built, you know, it was built by very poorly underpaid immigrants from Italy and, and you know, and, and Ireland who were paid peanuts to build these buildings. You know, it's almost a, a form of slavery, isn't it? That is nothing new, sadly. Um, you know, that's the Romans, you know, everything, um, the Persians, you know, all the great, the Egyptians, all of the great, you know, leading powers at some stage during our history, are all based on the back of slavery. I'm not condoning slavery, of course, for one single moment, but that's it's a learning process. And, and as I said, I'm much more interested in trying to fix the problems we have right now than worrying too much about the problems we had a long time ago, which we can't change. Yeah. You know, and they're not relative now. You know, I think it's ridiculous when we ask someone like Prince Charles to apologise for slavery that has nothing to do with him
0: you Mm. know i mean yeah yeah no i completely
2: tokenism and virtue signaling and means nothing
0: yeah yeah no i i couldn't agree more um one of the your other projects you've got lots of different you've got your um finger in lots of different pies is you have a um uh, a new hit online training thing don't you tell tell us a bit about that and where that why why have you done that
2: So, so much like everybody else during COVID, you know, it was about how we can try and keep ourselves fit and healthy. The biggest excuse that comes up is lack of time. So I wanted to create a program that can be done four times a week, for 15 minutes, one hour a week, everyone can find one hour a week to do, you know, at some stage during your life. And that would, would stop people from having excuses. Uh, Just something very simple, because exercise is often just repetition. It's just about doing it. You know, there's no shortcut, there's no magic pill. You know, you, you have to put the effort in. But if we could create a program where the least amount of effort was required in the shortest amount of time that would actually get results after three months, that's what I did. So I created this online HIP program, which I'm very proud of. And, and I do want to grow that. And maybe once, you know, I'm getting the opportunity to have a bit more of a platform, then I can be able to, to promote it a little bit more. But I am very proud of it, of what we've done. It's a, it's a really good little program.
0: Fantastic. Well, I, I think you, uh, ultimately it's about keeping people fit and healthy, which has got mm-hmm. to be a you know a yeah. brilliant thing. And it?
2: it's, people forget how mental health is is linked to physical health. You know, we release endorphins when we exercise. Endorphins are, are nature's antidepressants, and that's another reason why we have a big problem with youngsters that do less and less activity and less and less sport, and more and more gadgets. You know, it's it's mental health issues. One in five girls at the moment self harm. And I can never get my head around that statistic. Right, that's when funny. we have more material things than we've ever had before in life, and um, you know, and more opportunities than we've ever had in life, you know, why do these youngsters feel that that there's no hope for them, and they're so sad and depressed? And you hit the nail on the head with social media. I'm sure that that has a massive, massive, you know, impact. And also things like you know, Love Island and and Kim Kardashian and the fact that everyone is supposed to look the same. You know, as humans, we're 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 all we're all different and we can all be gorgeous in our own way. You know, we don't all have to look like one type of person for that to be acceptable. I don't believe we've made progression in those areas. I think we've, we've gone the opposite way, really.
0: Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it, it, a friend of mine says, uh, why are we trying to fit in when we were born to stand out? And I think ultimately yeah. we should stand out. And I think, unfortunately, with social media, you know, when we were, when we were growing up, we compared ourselves to the best looking kid, in the class or at best the school whereas now they're comparing themselves against the best looking people in hollywood and that are airbrushed within an inch of their existence anyway and it's just yeah it's it comparison is the is the route to misery isn't it
2: and also when we went home we could turn it off couldn't we yeah so if we were i don't know if we were getting a bit of a bad time at school it generally stayed at school yeah you know, now because of social media it's 24 7 and these poor kids that are finding it challenging you know it, they are literally on their all line and all the time and, and the ability to put their phone down and it is one of the strict rules i have in our house is that you know the phone has to go down and we don't spend hours on you know just playing horrible games and all the rest of it that's why they have to be involved in sports um, <laughs> And so you have to lead from the front, unfortunately, parents. So sorry, but you need to get them, you know, the best way to get your kids doing things is to do it with them.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Now, you mentioned that I probably was too young for, was it Give Us a Clue, did you say? Give Us a Clue, yeah. I do remember, or I do remember it vaguely, (laughs) but... But one TV program I was a massive fan of was Gladiator. So I can't. I can't. Yeah, I'm
2: trying to see if I've got anything gladiatorish around here. Let me see.
1: I actually wanted to be a gladiator. There
0: you go. Thank you. <laughs> I, I loved so many people.
2: Do you know, I was heartbroken. I actually tried to say no to Nigel Lisko, who was the producer. So Derek was working on the show. Derek Redmond, my husband at the time, was working on the show as a trainer. And I kept doing the show. And I was presenting the kids' series with Daley Thompson, a really good friend of mine called Train to Room, which is a kids' version. And Nigel kept saying, come on, be a good And I kept going, no, 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 no. And in the end, I gave in. And then I remember being in the supermarket and I could hear this kid saying to his mum, oh, you know, I want to get her autograph. I want to get her autograph. And mum said, I'm sure it'll be fine. Go up to the frozen chicken, ask her. She'll be okay. So he came up to me. I signed it. He went back to his mum and he went, who's Sharon Davis? I was, like, <laughs> 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 <That> was heartbreaking. <laughs> But yeah, it was a crazy show, wasn't it? 17, 18 million people on a Saturday night. You know, three, two, one. <laughs>
1: yeah, and
0: you know, you just—I—I I, I can always remember Shadow's eyes when he'd got the—the—that was frightening, um, probably I for the wrong reasons. I, I did
2: some comic cons last year because I thought it would be really fun to catch up with them. So I, ca- I caught up with Jet, with Diane, with Lightning, with Hunter. Wolf?
1: Who are
2: I Haven't seen Wolf for a while. He went to Australia for a long time. He's back now, but um. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, isn't it? Some of them have really changed. Other things haven't. And And it's the same as when I go away to commentate, because obviously I'm with all my buddies that used to compete. You know, so they're all doing track and field or they do cycling or judo or wherever. And we just all pretend that we're 30, 40 years younger than we really are and just tell the same stories over and over.
0: Well, it was certainly it was certainly a highlight of, of my youth, that's for sure um now we we always ask everybody on this podcast um for a book recommendation it doesn't have to, you know it can be anything but but are there any particular books that you found you know particularly helpful in your life but or books you find yourself recommending regularly regularly if not books then other resources similar but anything that stands what's, out what's the book the the chimp the chimp paradox, the chimp by paradox. I, I, have
2: that. I do think that for an athlete you have to be mentally very tough So it's very underestimated how mentally fit you have to be. Mm. And I think even more so in the world that we live in today, when everybody is a specialist and, and, you know, you can't stay off social media and, you know, the pressure that's involved was bad in my day and it must be tenfold now. So um, I think that's quite an interesting book, you know, to understand but, um, you know, that there is this little chimp on your shoulder that's telling you the things that you can't do. And then and how important it is for you to understand. But actually, I've done all the hardware. Actually, I can do it. And what's the very worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to fail. I'm going to learn. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do it better next time.
0: So last question, Sharon, and this is a new thing for series four. What we've got, at uh, we've got the last guest um, from series three, which was Jodie Stimson to ask a question but she didn't know who she was asking the question to so Claire what was what was Jodie Stimpson's question for Sharon Davis
1: okay so um which country has been the most memorable that you visited and why and is there another country that you'd really love to visit
2: oh gosh um oh gosh Countries are so different, aren't they? You know, obviously Moscow is so special because it's, it, it, it's, it's defined who I am, really, that Moscow Olympic medal. Um, but it was very grey at the time behind the Iron Curtain. Um, if I had to go on holiday anywhere, it would be the Maldives because then I could just be in the water. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, a, I'm like a fish. Once I'm near the water, I'm just in it. And that's it. That's where I'm at, actually at home. But I, do, I love going to Australia. You know, if I had to pick one other country that maybe I had to live in, then maybe it would be Australia.
0: Fantastic. That's a great place. It?
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think um you know. I, th- I think I think a lot of triathletes would also say the same thing. It's yeah. it's a great country if you're interested in. You love sport, isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. And one final question for you, Sharon. Uh, what are you most excited looking forward? What are you most excited about?
2: um British swimming is in a really wonderful place you know we had the most successful Olympic games we've ever had in Tokyo um we've got some fantastic young talent particularly in the men's team I think the women's team we we need to just pick it up a tiny bit um but there it's it's there um so I think I'm just looking forward to to Paris you know it's going to be here before we know it because of the fact Tokyo was delayed we've had such a busy squashed year this year with world championships Commonwealth Games and Europeans uh we've got worlds again you know it's it's Yeah. I mean, before we know it, we will be in Paris. And with it being so close to us, there'll be lots of Brits there. We'll have a big team and I think something will be very successful. So from a purely selfish perspective, it will be where my microphone, I'm hoping it will be my 13th Olympic Games and I will still be there. On a personal note, I've got a lovely, gorgeous little two-year-old granddaughter. So I'm now grandma, which is hilarious. Um, And I get her one day a week. And if ever I need grounding, that's the thing that does it, because it just brings me right back down to, you know, here's the potty. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I'm very happy. You know, my kids are all doing really well. At the end of the day, I just want them to be happy and healthy. And that's that's the best present ever.
0: Brilliant. Amazing. Sharon, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. I've, I've loved every minute of it and there's so many wonderful stories in there, but also, um, some great, like, I just think how you've stood up, up for what you believe in is absolutely amazing. So, um, so a huge thank you for, for being on the Tribathlon podcast. A huge thank you for, for standing up for what you believe in. And, um, yeah, we we'll look forward to seeing you on the, on the side of the pool in, uh, in due course. Thank you very much.
2: Bye-bye guys.
0: best place to find sharon davis is at www.sharondavis.com and that's sharon with two r's um all of her social media links are on there so track it out on there um and also if you want to find out more about the pools uh, and paragon structures then it's www.paragonstructures.com again i'll put these links in the show notes So, Claire, what did you make of the interview with Sharon Davis?
1: I thought it was fantastic. You know, I I think um, very kind of in the moment, actually talking about um, the the kind of trans, I want to say, debate. I don't know that it's really a debate, but also the intricacy and the layers that actually sit within that and actually how many years this has been going on, you know, and she was talking about not just from a a trans perspective, but really with the doping, so to speak, and, and actually... the the kind of cheating I guess that was that was happening years ago um and the fact she's able to like that she's speaking out of it out about it and and really leading on it and I think that's amazing um the work that she's doing
0: I think I I I thought it's absolutely fascinating about yeah exactly that that comparison between the drug taking of um of the 70s and 80s of East Germany and the trans debate today because uh, clearly, they're very different on many, many levels. We're not mm-hmm. saying that 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 mm-hmm. um, the that, that trans debate is about cheating, which blatantly East Germany was a, was mm-hmm. about. Um, albeit actually in many instances, it wasn't the East German athletes that were cheating themselves; they were being forced to cheat by by mm-hmm. a state. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the 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 fairness of competition and also yeah. the IOC's inability or unwillingness to act. Mm-hmm. I think is um, there's a lot of similarities there, which is which is really interesting, and I hadn't realized until starting my research as that was why Sharon was so outspoken about it. Um, and it was the
1: same for me actually, and I think we probably haven't unless you've looked for that information, I think a lot of us probably are not aware actually of the background behind behind all of this actually not not just the you know talking about trans and the fairness within sport. Um, but you know going right back into the you know the ni- you know the 1970s and things and i think um i think it's it's fascinating um, yeah. and the fact that this has all been kind of opened up is is great that that we're talking about it
0: yeah i think i think it's it's really interesting and I, I, again i i wasn't aware of kind of how like how big a difference it makes i mean i knew it made a, a significant difference but once they'd got their testosterone down to the the, was it the five nanomoles is that right you you um but that's still f- four you know five mm-hmm. times more what um any mm-hmm. female athlete would have mm-hmm. plus the physical side of it you know the fact that the swimmer was six foot four you know you don't see any female swimmers at six foot four and um or born biological females and, that, and the other thing is like it's a really difficult subject to talk about because of the fear of putting your foot in it and saying the wrong thing and mm. you know and that's not because we're not um you know we're not anti-transgender uh, and mm-hmm. she's certainly Sharon from everything I've mm-hmm. listened to on her and what we've just you know mm-hmm. from the interview there isn't there isn't you know, yeah she actually didn't say it in this interview but she's got quite uh, several friends that are transgender and friends that are parents of transgender children mm-hmm. so she really isn't anti- transgender at all it's just trying to create fairness in sport
1: and I think yeah the way the way that she put it across which is really interesting why there hasn't been more scientific research and that hasn't been and I don't know all the ins and outs of being backed by um the IAC and things but um it's really interesting because um you know it's as she was saying it, it's so obvious that that is going to play a part in not being fair within within women's sport um, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it really is, and I think the other thing is that she briefly touched on the categorization of sport. You know how you don't you have a fifteen-year-old competing with a with an eight-year-old, and you don't have, um, and you don't have a a um. But I think I think that actually was, was a really important point, which we didn't t- go into a lot. But you know, like in boxing, you don't have a heavyweight boxer fighting a bantamweight boxer, yeah. and and equally, you know, you you, you have um, you know. Uh, we we would be competing again, roughly time wise. We'd be about in the same mm. uh, same zone um, for competing on Ironman, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. But clearly, that is a totally different thing because it's it's a different category. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's. Um, I, I thought it was really really interesting. What other bits of what Sharon was talking about got you thinking?
1: I think like her her real kind of like wanting to. Um, create this kind of like health and access to not it's not just about swimming but obviously that's her background that's her passion that's her profession or you know what's her profession and and you know the the things that she's getting herself involved in so in terms of like building well wanting to to um create more pools and get people back into sport and you know it's not about doing sport actually I should say activity you know health and wellness and mental health um you know, so she's she's really trying to kind of, um, yeah, create create a healthy nation um, yeah. and kind of provide, you know, provide the access to people. I didn't realise how many pools were just going. But, I mean, that to me was I didn't realise that was happening at all.
0: Well, no, I didn't either. I mean, I just knew that the Oakland pool near me had closed. But actually, yeah, 250 during lockdown. I mean, that's frightening. at A time when actually people need them more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was you know certainly the one local to us it just felt like covid was the excuse to get rid of an old pool okay. that they'd quite happily have decommissioned yes. years ago mm-hmm. um but yeah they're getting let off the hook so i'm i'm definitely going to um get on to rutland county because there, there is not one public swimming pool in the whole of the county we've got one from one that that you can pay to be a member of that's owned by uppingham school one that's paid uh, by oakham school but clearly that makes it very restricted in terms of what fits in around how right, the, the mm-hmm. um and and that's it. So um yeah, it, I'm gonna definitely be introducing paragon pools to um to mm-hmm. Rutland County Council. Well, I was to look
1: at I, that was one of my questions I didn't ask actually about actually what what was she talking about? So I'm gonna I'm gonna hop on and have a look and see what what it is. Um yeah. so. They
0: sound really cool, don't they? Yeah, yeah, I think you need one for your garden.
1: I was about to say exactly the same thing, especially today.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Not that I'm complaining about the
0: heat. Um, and uh, but yeah, no, I thought it was a really, really good interview, and I think it's. I mean, I, I just had forgotten actually until she she mentioned it that she was at the Olympics at 13. I mean, that is.
1: I didn't actually. I didn't realise that until I looked a bit more into actually. Which is, I can't even Im- imagine what that would feel like. But like, actually, actually, as she said, and I'm sure you can kind of like kind of remember this as well I think at that age you almost don't have a fear of doing those things like I think the older you are the more that you would probably fear failure whereas I think at that age it's probably you don't have you don't have so much of that do you um
0: yeah I I think that's it you go in with no expectations and a 13 Mm -hmm. is like you're I mean my youngest daughter's 13 and the idea of her being at the Olympics at this stage just seems absolutely bonkers now, admittedly, she's not five foot seven as Sharon was, at, <laughs> at, um, uh, but then, you know, that's not that surprising given that I know I'm only five foot eight. But it's, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just found that to be amazing. So, um, yeah, really, really lovely chat with uh, with Sharon Davis. Anything else you want to pull out from the interview before we uh, let these uh, listeners disappear?
1: Well, I mean, I totally forgotten she was a gladiator as well. Again, have to do, <laughs> I did my research there, but um yeah it's yeah just just amazing and and how long she's been involved in you know the b b c with yeah. um sport and the olympics and um you know being at all of those olympics, whether she was competing or um presenting which is just you
0: know. yeah and she didn't actually mention it, but in the gladiator she actually did she um uh, had really damaged her knee badly, and as a result of that she's not been able to i think she really is able to run since um Because uh, yeah, she she really I I don't know exactly how she damaged it, but she uh, yeah she probably on the what was can you remember what the things where you swung you swung yeah I
1: don't
0: can't remember what that was called called, but um but uh, yeah anyway um right well (laughs) on that note we will we will leave on the gladiator note but thank you for joining me on this podcast this is going to be a really good episode uh, series of um tribeathlon podcast we've got so many cool people lined up um so uh, so look out for the next um uh, for the next uh episode and in the meantime uh, if you're enjoying it please review it share it talk about it tell your mates about it um we don't ever ask for any patronage we don't ask for we don't get paid money by any of the sponsors Um, and really chuffed that 33 fuel are joining us as a sponsor going forward for this um, series but we don't pay us money Um, so if all we need for you guys the best thing you can do to help us is to share it and review it Um, so until the next time keep on training and remember this podcast was sponsored by 33 fuel So rethink your sports nutrition with 33Fuel, award-winning natural sports nutrition for your performance, health, and a fitter future. It's the 33Fuel Fuelosophy. Get yours at 33Fuel.com. And if you use the discount code TRIBEATHLON or the link in the show notes, you'll get a discount at the checkout. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do review it and share it because it helps other people find what we think is really valuable learning lessons from amazing athletes um, so please do that um, you can also find the whole back catalogue at tribeathlon.com and you can also find out about the Athlon app which helps people find events find people to train with and enjoy their events through their tribe so check out tribeathlon.com